Check, check, check. Check, check, check. Check, 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 check. I think we're good. We're good? What should, I mean, there's a million puns we can go with for the title of this. Where it's at. We got two white settlers <laughs> and a microphone. Where it's at. Two white settlers and a microphone. Two white settlers and a microphone. Uh, settled in. It's settled. So instead of turntables, settler, white settlers. White settlers, yeah. Okay. Uh, it is the 50th anniversary of hip-hop, so that would be paying some respect. Yeah, Beck is definitely... A bit downstream from uh, from the hip hop of fifty years ago, but he, he's in the pantheon, I suppose. And if Beck could be in there, so could we. Well, yeah, Beck is uh, definitely a settler, so maybe we can think of something else. Yeah, um, we'll work on that. That's not. We'll do, we'll talk about this afterwards. Well, it could be like me and Rax's uh, like culture, like in movie and TV series, where it's like fifteen episodes in, and we still joke about not having a name. Mm-hmm. We could take suggestions from our lovely patrons if you have a suggestion for what yeah. you would call uh, this reading series of Jay Sakai's Settlers. Sound off in the comments. Well, let's not settle on anything for now. Okay. It's going to um, be something with settle. Yeah. I, so, this is your first time reading it. It's my first time reading it. Yeah. Um, we had a lot of response from Twitter when we said we were going <laughs> to read it. A lot of people were like... Really mad, and Catrone was mad. He's like, "I'm so disappointed in you." Yeah, he did say. And that. as you said, I am not afraid of book. I am not afraid of book. You are not afraid of book. Twitter seems to be afraid of book. Catrone is dismissive of book, which I think is the reason why we should read it. There was so much. We sparked so much discourse when we talked about doing this reading series on Twitter that in in subsequent days, I saw people like meta referring to the settlers discourse so we struck a nerve for sure i feel like every like year or so um the online left has to reckon with jay sakai again and sakaiism um and we also got a few people sending us links uh about sakai to either dissuade us or encourage us um one of them was just sort of this wingnut like maoist takedown where Mm. this guy's like he doesn't agree with me politically. That means he's obviously an FBI an agent. An FBI agent, yeah. Uh, there was the discourse that I saw. You were engaging with it where I believe it was like patriotic socialist types were arguing that Jay Sakai is fake, that it's like yeah. a pen name. It's actually a white anarchist. And dude. we know from friends of ours that that's not true. Yeah. Um, but maybe we'll investigate this question more as we get deeper in. We don't have a lot of time for this first episode. Yeah. So... We'll try to focus on, as a good reading group should, the actual text. Yeah. And it opens with this great Marx quote, which I had never read before, I don't think. Did you know this quote from, a, from it's on the 1850 split in the no. German Communist League? I've never read that, uh, that, that text, and I've never seen it. Let's, let's read the quote. That'll yeah. set, the, set the frame here. The minority puts a dogmatic view in place of the critical and an idealist one in place of the materialist. They regard mere discontent instead of real conditions as the driving wheel of revolution. Whereas we tell the workers, you have to go through 15, 20, 50 years of civil wars and national struggles, not only in order to change conditions, but also to change yourselves and make yourselves capable of political rule. You, on the contrary, say, quote, we must come to power immediately or else we may as well go to sleep, unquote. Whilst we make a special point of directing the German workers' attention to the undeveloped state of the German proletariat, 
you flatter the national feeling and the status prejudice of the German artisan in the crudest possible way, which admittedly is more popular. Just as the word people has been made holy by the Democrats, so the word proletariat has been made holy for you. And that's great because I do feel called out by that. My writing contains a lot of the P word. And uh, I'm actually in sort of a phase since that group SM28 dissolved Mm. of reevaluating my use of it. Because my use of it was this sort of idiosyncratic, like, like a kind of specific way of looking at it. Like a politicalist way, right? Yeah, I mean, it comes out of Dave, um, his, his understanding of the proletariat as like not the class for itself, but the you know, the, the people who are willing to fight to abolish class society. So that's much different than how Marx uses it. So it, it like the vanguard? Um, sort of, but more like just the people who are willing to fight. So instead okay. of like rooting the proletariat purely in the underclass or in the industrial working class, it's like anyone who's actually fighting. Okay. And, and gotcha. fighting with communism as something of a goal. Mm. It's a total, it's a tautology is a problem. Yeah, the proletariat, yeah. I think in Marx is more of an objective term. And this is where, this is kind of how Sakai uses it too. Yeah. I, I mean, there's something really um, striking about putting this in the very beginning because this Marx quote here from 1850 um, is, on Sakai's part is basically saying like, um, he, what he's saying is that he's going to try to do the same thing that Marx was doing. Is like not try to um, you know analyze the, or look at the proletariat in the abstract, but look at the actual concrete conditions. Not make the proletariat into some moral figure or even a figure that's like ready to rule or ready to have a revolution, but instead in its actuality. Hence the subtitle of the book, which is the myth of the white proletariat. This is what he wants to do. He wants in 1983 to problematize this question of what the working class, what the proletariat is in the United States uh, against, I think, because 1983 is a very interesting year against a whole bunch of other currents, it seems like, both in like the white, especially probably in the white, um, like, uh, communist, socialist, militant movement, but also, I think, within the black movement as well, which he had connections to both of them. So 1983 is a time when, like, new historiography, like, uh, people's history was really big. You had a lot of the dropouts from the 60s generation fall into academia. You had um, all sorts of attempts to write history from below, as it were. Uh, in a sort of Howard Zinn type way, you know, if uh, in, in like the Howard Zinn type history, which is becoming increasingly popular at this time, if you have a figure like Christopher Columbus, what you do is you like point out the hypocrisy of Christopher Columbus. You take the Columbus story and you flip it on its head and you show how instead of him being a great explorer and adventurer, he's a slaver and he's a genocider. And then you leave people to like decide what to do at that point in time. Sakai here is like entering into, I think, what was at that time a very real historical debate among people not in academia, but like actually on the ground facing shit like the failure of all the various Maoist sects of the 1970s, the failure of industrialization um, on the part of Trotskyists and Maoists and others trying to go to the factories and get jobs and try to organize there. Um, Deindustrialization and things that sort of happening at this point, and obviously the Reagan Revolution, right? So this is kind of a broadside against like 
a particular sort of left workerism mm-hmm. that exists during this time. And it comes out of, as we know from reading the secondary literature, like his follow-up, which is what, when race burns class, that's what mm-hmm. it's called. Basically, it's, uh, it's his frustration with his inability to make inroads with his fellow white workers in the various yeah. factory and other jobs he had. And that text remind I'll put that in the show notes because that's one of the, the really helpful texts somebody sent to us. Um, it's an interview with him a few years later. And he, he describes his uh, impetus for writing the book as pretty similar, like same place as, as Nolan Natiev. Yeah. I assume that they had contact and debate and stuff. They were working in like steel, mil- st- steel mills around Chicago, I mm-hmm. think. Like, you know, they, it seemed like that they were both communists who had gone to work in the factories to organize there or just to see what it was and see what the condition of the working class was like. And they both came to this conclusion that uh, the black-white color line, that race contradiction was much deeper than the way the left traditionally thought about class, yeah. even the new left. Even the new left, yeah. And it was a problem that had to be reckoned with, and, and Noel, of course, went in the direction of race trader, mm-hmm. and he goes uh, in uh, uh, you know, a significantly different direction with settlers. I think that's going to be one of the interesting things that maybe you and me as two white settlers with a microphone could do in this instance, is you have this background from like the race trader, Noel Ignatiev, uh, you've done a lot of reading and studying and writing about that stuff. Uh, me, more like labor history and like right. general sort of American history. So we should like, we should use our backgrounds in order to kind of tease out where um, Sakai uh, gives powerful uh, examples or like powerful arguments in the ways that he falls short. Because I will say right off the bat, and we're only really touching on the introduction in chapter one here in this very first episode of our reading series. Somebody cautioned me. One of the many interlocutors online said, you can't read it as a history text. It's a polemic. Mm-hmm. Well, That's pretty obvious with the way he spells America. <laughs> yeah, right. America with a K always, sometimes with three Ks. That's all well and good. Um, I think it should be read as a polemic. But if you look at Sakai's method, he's bringing history to bear upon his thesis, right? So it's, I think, feel like it's a cop-out when people say, like, oh, he got... Some of the history wrong. Sure, he cherry picked some stuff. Sure, he like put a particular spin on things. But it's a polemic. Well, you have to judge it based on not just its polemic qualities because right. you can stand there from the rooftops and yell anything. You also have to judge it from I think his the evidence that he brings to bear on so it. So it seems to me the central historical point that he makes in this first chapter is the idea that there just wasn't really a. European working class in the mm. United States. Um, he implies, I mean, we, we haven't, we've only gone through the first chapter. He implies that there has never been one, mm-hmm. I guess that's in the title. Yeah. But certainly in this first chapter, he's got these statistics and he says that um, in 1775, 80% uh, of the, uh, what's now the United States, the Euro American class structure was bourgeois and petty bourgeois. Mm. 10% capitalists, great planters, large merchants. 20% large formers, professionals, tradesmen, other upper middle class elements, 40% small landowning farmers, mm-hmm. 10% artisans, 15% temporary workers who usually move upwards mm-hmm. into the ranks of the small farmers, like indentured, indentured servants. Mm-hmm. And then you got 5% actual white laborers. So only, only real 5% permanent working class as compared to the situation for uh, natives and uh, blacks who are... Uh, a per- and in a permanent state of objection. Yeah, like a caste-type system. He makes some interesting arguments here. The, 
he hypostatizes, is that the word for it? He like reifies U.S. imperialism and he reifies the white settler. Uh, he takes what is a historical process, uh, a process of class formation and then class deformation as like an object and he deals with it relatively ahistorically uh, despite the fact that he's bringing history to bear on it. And what I mean by that is, yeah, you have this chart here, which, as you just laid out, shows that 86% of uh, white settlers were bourgeois uh, or uh, petty bourgeois. This is to be expected, very much to be expected. I mean, you're talking about, on the, in this early chapter here, you're talking about the 17th century. Not even in Europe, where these people were leaving from, mostly from England, but also from the Netherlands and elsewhere, was there a fully developed uh, proletariat at all? Certainly not an industrial proletariat. You have at this moment in time, you're 50 to 100 years into the process of enclosure and um, enclosure and um, proletarianization of tenant farmers towards like an agricultural proletariat. Um, you're even in the midst of or before um, the great first attempt at uh, violent colonization of a, a backwards and primitive peoples, which uh, is in Ireland, right, under Cromwell during the, um, the English Civil War. So we shouldn't expect, although Sakai wants us to, um, to, to think that historians are arguing or that leftists are arguing that there was like a... Uh, definitive working class, a class in itself that existed in the colonies at this particular time, but I'm not sure who he's arguing against at that point in time. We well, should expect... it's in the footnote, yeah. um, and I think it's a little bit... I don't know if it's worth getting into. I mean, maybe it's uh, footnote 26. Um, he's t- saying Jackson, Turner, Maine, the social structure of revolutionary America, mm. and James A. Hanretta, economic development and social structure in colonial Boston... And he says that the the conclusion um, says that there's this emerging proletariat at, mm. at 1776. Um, oh yeah, this is an oft quoted conclusion. Uh, economic development concludes that the colonial era was one of rapidly growing settler class inequality with the appearance with appearance of proletarians. So he's arguing against this Henrietta person. Yeah. I mean, we'll have to really look at, because the chapter ends at 1776, so we'll have to yeah. look at how he extends this argument through there, but it sounds like you don't disagree, you just, you find the framing polemic. No, I, yeah, I find, polemical. I, the framing is certainly polemical, and I know why he does it. Um, it's an, he's making even a deeper argument than that. He's making the argument that uh, black slaves, African slaves who were brought and the Native American peoples who were in the process of being removed or killed, uh, actually already by the 17th and early 18th century, already had formed into what in the 20th century, you know, with Lenin and Stalin would have been, would be considered like a nation. They had a nation for themselves, which is not just to say like a cultural um, milieu uh, and attachment to the land, but in fact, this proletariat, as he understands it, um, had all of the accoutrements, had all the skills, had all the uh, division of labor, essentially, to be considered not just a nation in and of itself, but the productive nation on top of which 
white settler society is grafted upon and parasitic upon this, right? So he's making an argument that there is a proletariat at this time, just, you know, against, I think, all major strains or most major strains of history. He's saying that, in fact, a proletariat does, it, does exist, but it's not, it's, uh, it's not a white one. Mm. The, that, in fact, the slaves and the native peoples represent that proletariat. They themselves represent a nation in, like, the Leninist sense, and that, again, there's like this, uh, already you start to see the parasitism that uh, Marxist, uh, Maoist internationalist movement types, uh, Maoist third worldists in the 70s and 80s, are saying that the United States plays on the, on the rest of the global world order. The United States with its super profits, with its super exploitation of the uh, third world, as it was called at that point in time. What he's arguing really is that you already see this tendency towards imperial exploitation and oppression existing within this particular society with the proletariat and a parasite class on top of it, which is a very, very polemical and strong argument. It's a really tough one because then at that point in time, he's basically arguing that surplus value is being created by this proletariat, that they function, or in fact that they are, a, um, an exploited class with the remainder of society. All these different gradations that he points to in that chart, that 86% uh, being uh, in their whole the exploiters. Which is an incredible argument. It's, it's one that's trying to take his present of the 1980s, which is a, we should remind ourselves, is at the tail end of the great de- colonization movements, you know, of the post-world pe- world period, the time when um, world systems theory and dependency theory are uh, becoming big, when um, the unipolar American hege- hegemonic world is like in its, you can, people can start to see like American unipolarity become this sort of imperial framework in the world. And he's pushing that back in time. And he said that that's actually determined by the settler class structure. Hey folks, Sean KB here. Uh, Just a reminder that our show relies on your support. So if you enjoy what we do and you want to hear more excellent bonus content, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash theantifada. It's cheap, there's a ton of content, and it would mean everything to us. So thank you, and we'll see you behind the paywall.